And whether, as Michelle mentioned, whether you've been here a thousand times or today's your first experience, uh, I'm trusting and praying along with you and those in this room that you've encountered God's presence and experienced his goodness this morning. Uh, my, my hope has been, as the week has progressed, that Thanksgiving not be the day of thanks, uh, that we certainly are thankful and grateful on Thanksgiving but that it serve as a bit of a warm-up, if you will, as an appetizer to what God uh, will want to do and will do in our midst together as we gather around the Lord's table here in just a little bit. So my goal over the next few moments in a little bit of a departure from our normal Sunday is to simply say enough to hopefully prepare your heart to meet with God and his people around the table. And not enough that you arrive there with your mind all made up, but that you arrive at that table in just a few moments, uh, ready to meet with God. I don't know about you, but in my family this time of year, we don't watch a lot of TV or a lot of movies most of the year, but this time of year we do. And for about the five weeks from Thanksgiving to New Year's, it's a lot of Christmas movies in my house. And a lot of, it used to be Hallmark movies, um, but this stinking college scandal really screwed up the Hallmark movies for us. Um, so now it's, you know, we've got to like surf a, a new uh, brand and a new style of Christmas movies. But in every Christmas movie that I love, you, you've always got, you know, that, that sweet, young, gorgeous guy who is jacked and lifting like 12 hours a day, uh, but never goes to the gym. And he runs, uh, you know, uh, a bed and breakfast that his grandmother left to him in a will and he snowed in at Christmas, and the beautiful young female executive comes to town and gets stuck, right? You know the story. And of course, you know in the first three minutes, they're going to fall in love, and um, she's going to love his dog, and she's going to love his house, and everything's going to go well. In one of these uh, great Christmas movies uh, that I love, there's a number of storylines going on, and one of the storylines is actually a really tragic, sad story of a husband whose wife has just passed away and died from what felt like at the funeral, cancer or some sort of chronic illness. And he's left now a widower with a young son who appears to be kind of early middle school age. And in the process of the dad grieving the loss of his wife, he's trying to care for his young son and he's fumbling all over himself like sometimes we do as parents, especially if we're left to do the parenting alone and uh, his son is grieving in his own way and sad. And, and at one point, the dad comes to the son and, and begins to try to have a conversation about what he's grieving about. And the son says, Dad, I, I miss mom, but I, I feel really guilty because I'm missing mom, yes. But uh, really what I'm most sad about most of the day is the fact that I have met my one true love and she doesn't know my name. And the dad is like shocked, like, and the son goes, Dad, I, I, I'm sure that you're really, really mad about this. I should be missing mom, and I should be grieving that. And, and I am, don't get me wrong, but, but I really, I just want this girl to know that I love her. And uh, instead of the dad dismissing it and saying, look, kid, you're, you know, like you're three, three foot 22. You're not even old enough yet to know what love is. You, this isn't the love of your life. This is uh, infatuation with some girl. He doesn't say that. And, and he doesn't say, on the other hand, how dare you have any other emotion other than grief and sorrow for the loss of your mother. Instead, the dad enters into it completely. And it's this amazing little storyline through a, a really silly and pithy movie, this 
amazing storyline of a dad entering into his own son's kind of foolishness and the pursuit of love, whatever that looked like for this little boy of this young girl. And the son learns to play drums so he can play in the band at the Christmas production with the girl who's going to sing. And you know the story, you know, they run and they meet at the airport and she gives him a little kiss on the cheek and it's really cute. It's special. We love these stories. We, we love the picture of a dad who enters into the silliness of his child's world and is present to it and doesn't make fun of it doesn't insult it, doesn't make little of it, doesn't even necessarily redirect it and say that it doesn't matter and something bigger does matter, even though all of that is likely true for most dads most of the time. This is the story of our Father in heaven, of Creator God entering into the story where we're at entering into what at times feels probably pretty silly to us. I'm sure that you have, because I have prayed prayers at times, that while you're praying them, you think this is just the silliest, dumbest prayer ever. Why am I praying this? And yet there's something about us that is drawn to the love of our Father, drawn in to that hope. I want to take you through some rapid-fire Uh, passages in Scripture. And if you've got your Bible, uh, you can turn to it. Um, If you're using a smartphone, turn it on and go to the YouVersion app. This is going to be the the greatest uh, accessibility for you today. And we've embedded some other resources and content into the YouVersion app for you today that I think will be helpful to you throughout the week. So go to YouVersion, download that if you haven't already, and tap on the bottom right-hand corner somewhere. There's a little hamburger menu there and go to events and select Disciples Church, and there'll be some helpful stuff in there for you. And as you go there, I want to just prepare you to go somewhat rapid fire through some text in Scripture about what the Father thinks of you. What the Father thinks when when He thinks about you. And then we'll connect that to Christ. Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, Son, and Spirit, We acknowledge, though at times we might not feel it, we acknowledge that you are here with us. And that these very candles on a table in the center of the room signify and represent and remind us that the flame of your eternal presence is here with us. That you're entering into this. That whatever it is we're carrying, However silly it may feel or however catastrophic it may seem, you're in the midst of it with us. Speak to us in these moments, God, and remind us how your heart is turned to us that our hearts might turn back to yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For from the very foundations of the world... The Father has been intimately acquainted with his creation and connected to his people, connected to you and I. Not far, not a ways off, not hearing our voice, but with us. Isaiah 65 says these words, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. 
This picture that before we even call out to the name of God, before we even reach out to him, he is hearing us and moving. Jeremiah 31 says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah goes on to write in later chapters, 33, he says, God responds back to Jeremiah and says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not yet known. This desire of an Abba Father, of a loving Creator God that says, there are things about myself I long to reveal to you. Call out to my name and I will reveal myself to you. Psalm 139, King David writes in his passionate back and forth with God and says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know all of it, and you've put it all together. And this is our Abba Father. There's almost no name under heaven given for God that better describes this level of intimacy that you and I have available to us than Abba Father. We see this intimacy lived out in the life of Christ himself as he not only connects with his people, his disciples, and, and those around him, but as in the midst of that, he connects with the Father in heaven. We see it in John chapter 17, this long prayer that Jesus prays and this intimacy he has with the Father. As if to paint a picture for you and for me and for us as a community of how it is supposed to be between us and God. We see it in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus points out to his disciples that no one knows the Father except the Son. As if to, as if to argue to you and I that our level of knowing the Father is nothing by comparison to the way that Jesus knows the Father. He goes on there in chapter 11 to say, not only that no one knows the Father except the Son, and who the Son chooses to reveal Him to. And so it is with this intimacy that Christ, our Redeemer, enters our lives. Just as the Father has sent the Son, the Son has sent the Spirit, and the Son meets with us and longs for our relationship with God to mirror or reflect the Father's relationship with the Son. As if Jesus slips away to pray to the Father and he says to the disciples, hey guys, when you pray, pray like this. This is the way I talk to God the Father. Here, here's how you ought to talk to him. 
Not in a would have or a should have or some sort of cosmic, you're getting it all wrong, get yourself straight. No, in the sense that the Father has entered into it. Jesus stands at Gethsemane in the moments prior to his arrest and says, God, if there's any other way for you to get this job done, do it the other way. Any other way. If there's any way for you to take this cup away from me, please do so. Please take this cup. Yet your will be done and not my own, Jesus prays. So Christ, our Redeemer, enters into our lives just like the Father is with the Son. And not simply to fight our battles or to lead us into victory. It's all of that for sure, but it's so much more simply than that. Christ is our Redeemer and is intimately connected to the Father and comes to be with us. In essence, to kind of bring the presence of the Father to a group of wandering orphans who are destined to rebel at every point they can. We go back to this relationship with God and with Israel and the ways in which they turn from Him time after time again, and yet God's presence remains with them. God remains present to them. And Jesus arrives to His disciples as if to set a new climate for His presence with them. As if to say to them, I am with you just as God has always been with Israel. I am with you in that same way. And I am redeeming all things, restoring all of creation back to myself. I think the Apostle Paul puts together this intimacy with the Father and this redemption of the Son and then this power we have in the Spirit so beautifully in Romans chapter 8. If you're there in the U version or if you're in a printed copy of the Scriptures, look there with me now. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. So now we call Him Abba Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in His glory, we must also share in His suffering. We must also share in His suffering. So we arrive here in just a few moments around the table. In much the same way that those 12 disciples arrived around the table with Jesus the night of that Last Supper. With all of our hang-ups, with all of our doubts, with all of our misgivings about who God is, with sort of the knowledge in the back of our mind, though it may not be in our frontal lobe, the knowledge in the back of our mind that just about the time this meal is done, we'll probably turn on God once or twice. And yet in the midst of that, he is present to the meal with us. As if to say that you experiencing my presence for a short moment 
will have more power over your transformation than the separation from me for eternity could ever have. That you will be more changed in moments in my presence. This crying out of King David that better is one day in your courts than a thousand days anywhere else. That I long to be with you around this meal. And Jesus gathers around the meal knowing full well what these 12 disciples will do and knowing full well that they represent these 12 disciples in some sense reflect back the 12 tribes of Israel in much the same way that Israel departed from God, these 12 disciples departed from God, and they represent to you and I our own departures from God. Some of us will depart for doubt. Some will depart because of greed. Others will depart because everyone else departed. And yet he arrives at the meal, excited to be present with us. So you've not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit and he has adopted you as his children. So these 12 disciples who arrive around the table are about to experience the miraculous closeness of Jesus. Present there with them. His, his incredible provision and providing a place to have a meal. I love the way Luke chapter 22 points it out, and we'll, we'll get to it in a few moments, but he even sends a few disciples into the city to go look for a house where they could share this famous meal. It says, hey, don't worry, you're going to find a guy there. It's all set up. It's all prepared. It's all done. It's all ready. I was thinking about this meal long before any of you ever were. And yet some foolishness will still await them. In the midst of the table, they'll argue about who's best and who's greatest and who should get the best seat at the table. But none of that has a way of moving Christ. None of it moves Christ off his focus to ensure that they experience his presence. That they experience loving Abba Father in that moment. That they experience the reckless, unending love of God. Even though they don't get it, they don't understand it, they couldn't earn it, they don't deserve it, they've got to experience his love, if even in these short moments. Jesus ensures that every portion of that table experience is soaked in his own tender vulnerability and the generosity of his presence. Every moment, every strike of a glass, every movement around the table, every experience they would have in those moments is designed for them to interact with God's loving presence. And it's not just the fact that the room had been prepared for them ahead of time. He starts the meal by pointing out how special it is, so much so that he says to them at the very outset of the meal, I won't even enjoy this meal again until we enjoy it together anew in the kingdom of God in all its fullness. This will be a special meal that I won't even share without you guys. He starts the meal in Luke 22 by, by holding up a glass of wine and sharing that glass of wine with everyone at the table. What an intimate experience. 
picture that with me for a moment around your Thanksgiving table this last Thursday. If somebody, a matriarch or patriarch at the table had stood up and and held a glass of whatever you were drinking around the table and held it up and said, this meal is so powerful and important. Let us just pause and all sip off this glass and then we're going to send it around. And just sit there in the awkwardness, in the silence, in the quiet to soak in the power of that togetherness. And as the glass goes, you know, the, the last person down at the end of the table is going, is there going to be enough for me? Is it all going to be backwash? Who's got germs? Is there bacteria in there? What's happening? I should have sat over there. This is terrible. Oh, I hope it's all gone. The next person is going, I'm really thirsty. I, I hope they don't drink it all. There's, there's Jim again. He's always drinking it all. He's going to take it all. It's like Jesus knew all of that. And he wanted to be sure they experienced it in its fullness. And then he washes their feet. And so for a sinful and selfish people, constantly scurrying around, trying to make life happen for themselves, Jesus redeems all that force of will and all of that ambition by having the table set before them. And we see, with, you know, 2,000 years of perspective, what would have likely been missed in that moment. That Christ's redeeming work, moving in power. You see, God's redemption of our weary souls did not start at the cross and was not finished at the empty tomb. God's redeeming work began way back in Genesis when two weary wanderers, Adam and Eve, arrived to him exposed and aware of how separated they were from the will and way of God. Hiding from him. And in that moment, they experienced the love of Abba Father as he clothed them and as he provided a sacrifice. And that experience rings true even today. Every time you and I enjoy this table set before us, one we don't deserve to partake of. And every time we experience this table, we tap into the loving presence of a Father who is present with us. So if you would, stand to your feet and as close as you're comfortable with, gather around this table and we will continue on with our time together. Luke chapter 22, as I've referenced a few times, I pick up in verse 14. And it says that when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But there's a fulfilling in this meal. There's something about this experience in the presence of God 
that shapes and changes us. We look across the table at someone whose politics we can't stand and try to make sense of how could they possibly love Jesus as much as I do and think that. Meanwhile, they're thinking the same thing about us. We look across the table at somebody and we wonder, how could you possibly be upright given what you're going through right now? And they look across the table at us and probably think the same. As I referenced earlier, he stood at the table and and all I can imagine was a full glass of wine. We've perfected it by now, but uh, it was wine nonetheless. And he holds it up and In verse 17, it says, He took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I won't even drink it again until the kingdom of God has come. And then some of the other gospels give us a a little fuller or a more illustrative picture of what goes on at the table with the washing of feet. But then in verse 19, he pivots again. And the assumption is that some of the meal has carried on at this point. They've realized the power and the importance of this meal, at least to some extent. And in verse 19, it says, He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance So over the course of the next few minutes, it's going to be pretty quiet in here. The band is just going to play softly behind us. And there's several loaves of bread. And given that it's been Thanksgiving, we usually, you know, have a little tiny little piece, you know, and you just enough to get stuck in your teeth, right? But today it's a feast. There's a whole bunch here. So in just a moment, um, I'm going to pray over the bread. And then let's just distribute it around and be sure everybody gets a nice, good hunk. And then we'll uh, take and eat of that and rest in the time it will take to eat that bread and to take in the fact that this is the body of Christ broken for us. So grab the bread, break it, and pass it around the room if you would, and then we'll pray and eat. today won't do unless you're gluten intolerant and then just fake it Uh, but grab a big piece grab what what seems like more than would be reasonable Again, the meal has been going on a little while. So try to, try to put yourself in that meal. Try to place yourself in the middle of that. They would have already eaten bread. Bread would have been on the table from the very get-go. They'd have been snacking on this. And he's already committed the wine to the meal. And they, they've had conversation. And, and we know 
because we've got perspective in the other Gospels, and a lot has already gone on in the course of this meal. But then he, he pauses and almost to circle back around again and picks up the bread again, as if to say, you might think you're already full, but you haven't had anything yet. This is my body. And he took some bread in verse 19 and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. think they must have been looking at Jesus by now and thinking, what is going on? Man, Jesus got real serious all of a sudden. And I imagine in that moment that um, the intimacy Jesus was feeling with Abba Father, knowing that the time on earth was coming short. But soon they would cohabitate again. And how that works is hidden in the mysteries of the Trinity, and I don't pretend to understand it, but there there had to be some sense of intimacy in that meal that the, the suffering will continue, but not for long. And this is just your friend Stu talking at this point, but I think most of us tend to think when he talks about the suffering we think about the physical pain that is to come on the cross, and certainly that is true. But isn't it possible that part of the suffering was the knowledge that he was going to be separated from his disciples? That that time of separation was, was about to happen, and that, that, as he said, you must enter into my suffering. Maybe it was simply foreshadowing that they were going to suffer to follow Jesus, but maybe it was more complex simply than that. Maybe it was a foreshadowing that you are going to feel the separation from me, and you're going to long for my presence in a way that you have right now. So do this in remembrance of me. Come back to the table to experience my presence anew, to pause, to be quiet. Remember my body broken for you. Luke 22 carries on in verse 20, and it says, After supper, 
he took another cup of wine. So another cup, a second cup. There had already been the, the first one that he blessed and he passed around the table and they all drank just to get an extra sip or two. But now he takes a second cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This cup is a new covenant. It's a new promise we now live into. And it represents the blood of Christ shed so that forgiveness of sin can happen for us. So that our sins can be separated as far as east is from the west thrown into the sea of forgetfulness and so that presence of God can be with us at all times. So take a moment and get a small cup of juice and hold on to it until it looks that everybody who has it wants it and then we'll take a drink together. young men around this table were not new to covenant. They knew this world intimately. And they would have studied just enough Jewish background and just enough of those first five books to know the covenant. To know the representation of the blood. And to know that all the other covenants that had been made had given a glimpse of Abba Father, a glimpse of his love, a glimpse of his covering, but never a full picture. The covenant with David was beautiful, but not complete. The covenant with Abraham, wonderful, 
but not the fullness of God. And yet Paul writes in Colossians that all the fullness of God was present in Christ. And so when Jesus arrives with this cup and says, this is a new covenant in my blood, it's full. It's all the fullness of the presence and goodness of God. Take and drink. Jesus, thank you for the price you paid. Thank you for your life, for your teaching, for your miracles that you entrust to us this day. Thank you for the pain that you suffered for your death, for those three dark days of separation. Thank you for the tomb that was rolled away, for your resurrected life. Thank you for your ascension back to the right hand of the Father to further establish your kingdom among us and to entrust to us your good news. Thank you for the mission that you have given us as your people. And thank you for the church that was given for that mission. Our gratitude overflows on this Thanksgiving holiday. And as we pivot back in to sing songs to you, God, we say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Hear the praise of your people turn our hearts to yourself and find delight in our passion for your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together. Sing there's nothing. Sing there's nothing.